Hi, it's Mark Sisson. Welcome to the Primal Blueprint Podcast. It's time for another show dedicated to the world of keto. Check out ketoreset.com for details about my New York Times bestselling book and send your questions to info at ketoreset.com. Hi, listeners. This episode of The Keto Show is getting into some broader health topics with Bordeaux Kitchen author Tanya Teshka. She had two other shows on the Primal Blueprint channel talking about her beautiful book, The Bordeaux Kitchen, A Comprehensive Immersion into French Food, Wine, and Culture, and she is a true health enthusiast, has been on her own journey, her quest to regain her health after some medical problems, and looking into all different aspects of not just healthy eating, but supporting that with healthy living, healthy environment. And she was traveling over here in the United States doing her West Coast book tour, for Bordeaux Kitchen, having some great events at bookstores, San Francisco, Los Angeles, Seattle. And we got a chance to sit down in person. It was great to meet her after working with her so long uh, from a distance from her base in Bern, Switzerland, when she was working on the book. And I think you're going to enjoy many of her insights about uh, the differences between European culture and American culture when it comes to uh, child rearing and the Uh, propensity for us to consume this mass-produced food rather than enjoy the farmer's market experience, which is central to European living experience. A lot of compare and contrast and food for thought for you. Uh, Some of the dangers of constant exposure to light, things like that, which not specifically related to your ketogenic eating goals, but guess what? A lot of research shows that this excess exposure to blue light, the blue light spectrum on the UV scale, the stuff that's disturbing to our circadian rhythms, also affects mitochondrial function and fat metabolism. It messes us up. So even if you're a devoted eater with a strict dietary guidelines and counting your macros and doing the best you can, you can get thrown off by other adverse lifestyle practices. Some of them, you might even not be aware of the effects, including that excess exposure to artificial light and digital stimulation, especially after dark. So enjoy my wide-ranging conversation with Bordeaux Kitchen author Tanya Teska, and go pick up that book if you're interested in that wonderful subject of French culture They live a long time. They eat a healthy, rich diet. They call it the French paradox, but it's not really a paradox. That is that they have low rates of heart disease, even though they eat a rich, high-fat diet. Great stuff. I know you'll enjoy this conversation with Tanya. Thanks for listening. Tanya Teshka, jet-lagged, but here with a smile. Thank you for coming across the world to just for the podcast and some other stuff, like a fabulous book tour for the Bordeaux Kitchen. Thanks, Brad. Thanks for inviting me. How has this whirlwind journey gone since the book's published, then the real work started? You had to start promoting it. Tell us about the book tour and what's what's up. Well, I just got in a couple nights ago to California, and I've got... um, You live in Switzerland. I live in Switzerland. You're American, American born and raised, and been over there with... um, with your kids and getting it. We're going to talk about this later, about the juxtaposition between the disastrous modern consequences of good old American living and some of the traditions and the Europeans that are 
raising their kids in a more favorable manner, enjoying a more balanced lifestyle. But right now you came from Switzerland over here to, to promote this beautiful book. Yeah. Well, my dad lives in California, so I wanted to see him. And so I was starting here in San Francisco uh, in a couple of days and um, appealing to the foodies uh, of California. And uh, then I'll go on to Los Angeles and after that to Seattle. So that's my that's my plan. And in the meantime, seeing old friends and making new ones, hopefully, and you know, promoting the book and hoping that it'll interest people and also help them on their health journey the way it's helped me. Right. So it's the, the Bordeaux Kitchen. The subtitle is An Immersion into French Food and Wine Inspired by Ancestral Traditions. I had to lean over and read yeah, that, even though we work through that subtitle so hard, every word <laughs> of it trying to get exactly what this book captured. But it's so interesting because... It's way more than a French cookbook. We, we looked on Amazon today and saw a hundred such cookbooks where they're just giving you the recipes. But this thing is, is a health journey, an education. It's got everything. And I have to say, we've been, we've been publishing books, Primal, for 10 years. And this one is by far the most comprehensive and absolutely your life's work coming into these pages. I think it was, you know, we started with like a thousand pages, right? And, and we cut it down. With painstakingly cut it down to 600 and something, right? Yeah, we cut it down a little bit, but it's good. It's good. It's big enough and um, has kind of the paleo-primal ancestral primer um, for those who don't know it yet. But, um, uh, you know, it's that kind of added to its length. Um, but, you know, people need to know, and I've, I've tried to um, write it in such a way that that I'm hopefully convincing people that, you know, looking back to our ancestors is a good approach to our modern um, way of eating um, rather than the processed foods. And um, This show is sponsored by In-N-Out Burger and Taco <laughs> Bell, the two-for-one special if you mention the Get Over Yourself podcast. Right, and it just so <laughs> happens that you're you're deeply immersed into the paleo scene. You're on your own health journey. We'll talk about that a little bit too, but it happens that traditional French culture and cooking is tightly aligned with all the principles that we're spouting, I guess most all of them, in the ancestral movement. Yeah, they really, really are. It's amazing if you if you kind of break down um, the, and it's not just the French. It's it's uh, it, that happens to be the culture that I connected with. But you know, so many traditional cultures really they they uh, they use you know the natural products, the pork lard, or you know eat the organ meats. And um, but I happen to you know be in France um, for a few years, and I'm a, kind of a francophile because I've spent time previously as a student and working there and that kind of thing. But um, but the French traditions really touched me um, at the same time that I was learning about the ancestral lifestyle or kind of going back to how people used to prepare foods and gather to eat and and the wine component too. Um, you know, it, it helps you slow down. It helps you um, just connect with others and celebrate the flavors and aromas and, and really, like I said, s slow down, which is something that we're not doing right now in our modern lifestyle. Everything's just speeding up. And as I've, you know, been trying to promote the book, I've noticed that, yeah, 
it just seems like maybe it's because I'm I'm in this world now of uh, social media and trying to you know get people's attention. It's really it's really a challenge. People are pulled in many directions, and it's um, I, it, there's a lot of competition for one's time and attention and concentration. And I think it's just getting it's getting harder, and we're moving further away from what our ancestors did, which was you know, just spend time together. Yeah, I remember visiting my my college roommate, uh, Barbara Stein, from Bulak, Switzerland. Uh, I was on, you know, European trip from uh, racing triathlons, and she said, come see me anytime. You know, we, we were roommates at UC Santa Barbara, just some random European exchange student, and turns out she had a pretty nice place there for me to stay and hang out for several days. But it, it was amazing because come five or six o'clock or whenever the people got off work, we went down to the town, uh, I guess you would call it the, the hall or the pub where they served dinner and also alcohol. And we ate and we sat around and talked and, and had something else and then had something to drink. And it seemed like the whole village was there from 5.45 to 10.45 p.m. Like it was just a routine part of life that they hung out and visited and socialized and my gosh, we have so much brain research and psychological well-being studies showing that this is just a fabulous way to live your life. It promotes happiness and fulfillment and all these great things that we seem to be missing out on with yeah. the digital age. Now, I wonder, that was uh, 30 years ago. Hey, Barbara, if you're listening, <laughs> I haven't seen you in a while. Uh, but what about now? Are you saying that, let's say in France or Switzerland, how do they score if you're on a one through hundred scale and U.S. is, what, what's the U.S. now, like a 33 or I don't know, something dis- disgraceful really with the tech addiction and the you know prevalence of all the junk food. How's Europe doing right now, 2018? Well, that's a great question because, you know, more and more um, it seems like the, that Europe is kind of following in um, the U.S. footsteps of just fat, everything's faster, fast, fast food, eating on the run. Is it true you can um, get a Facebook account if you're European, or is that just? Oh wait, <laughs> oh you can an iPhone. Can. Oh my gosh, we're exporting <laughs> oh, yeah. everything. Yeah, well, and they're really into their. Well, actually, the Europeans had the cell phones before. Oh, that's right. We uh, did. Uh, uh, the Americans did, yeah. but um, yeah, it's uh, gosh, the scorecard. Well. I I have to say that um, well, I haven't been back long in the U.S., but um, uh, I've already seen kind of the higher prevalence of obesity and things like that. And um, so, so Europe is still behind in that or ahead, if, if you want to look at it that way. Um, and you know, the traditions are still there. The architecture is there. The, the bells in the churches, they ring. I, I actually missed that um, already. Um, and, you know, the lifestyle, it's starting to change and, and you, can, you can get lots of fast food at the grocery stores in Switzerland or, or France. Um, but there's still that construct or that, I don't know, what do you call it? You know, infrastructure of of a, a traditional lifestyle and this on Sundays everything's closed 
You know, you don't shop at the mall on Sundays. You can shop at Ikea, you know, on Saturdays, but then they close at whatever time, five or six, and that's it. You know, you so you, you sort of plan your life uh, knowing that Sundays you're going to go walk up an Alp or something like that. What about the <laughs> siestas in the afternoon? Is that still a fixture? Oh, well, you know, in countries, in the more southerly countries like um, like Spain, uh, yes, I think they'll, they have... Um, the siestas, that's not really something so much in, in a place like uh, France or Switzerland. Um, so they're more, well, there's still kind of the weekend lunch at grandma's. Um, that's definitely there. Um, you know, family visits on the weekends, that's really important. Um, so that's an institution that hasn't changed yet. Um, and, you know, all the bars and the quick shakes and things, it's really not it's not something that's come into the lifestyle in, in Europe as much. There are a few people, you know, running around with... Um, das course. Cliff Bar, very good. You try this. It's so, so nutritious. Ay, ay, ay. Let's keep them out of there. Okay. Yeah, let's keep them out of there. Yeah. Um, they have some. And, you know, Starbucks is infiltrating, of course. Um, but, uh, and and all the other, you know, fast food places. Not not all of them, a few. Um but uh, it's just a different, you know, they kind of started from a different base. Like I said, the architecture and the, the cultural development. So the Taco been... Bell doesn't fit in as well to that central square <laughs> no. in Bern, Switzerland, as no. it does maybe in uh, Elk Grove, California, the, the sprawling suburbs outside of Las Vegas or something. Just dr- drop a Taco Bell in there. It looks like it's an authentic part of the, the native landscape. Right. Well, and the strip malls, you know, there there are... There are some, for example, just outside Bord- central Bordeaux, kind of old, old town Bordeaux, they have kind of strip mall type places and it's it's pretty ugly. Um, so, you know, you have to, if you stay in the old towns, but they're everywhere in Europe, um, you know, you get that romantic um, feeling of the architecture and the medieval buildings and that kind of thing. But... Um, but there is a, you know, people are on their cell phones and, you know, there is, there is sort of progress, as you might say, in, in Europe. People are moving faster, but they still have, thankfully, a connection, you know, to the, to the past, um, whether they like it or not, um, which is something that just, you know, in the U.S., we just don't have as long a, a history mm. of, you know, these distinct cultures and it's, it's a blend. It's a newer entity. So, you know, it's easier to kind of go with the next new thing uh, here. And and, and that, that's a frustrating thing for entrepreneurs in Europe, where the regulations and, and um, you know, the social norms and even the, the economy is set up somehow not as much for an entrepreneurial spirit. It's a little harder there. In the U.S., you just, you know, start a new business today and that's what I'm doing. So that's wonderful about the U.S., you know, if you, but um, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's just different um, here and I don't, I don't know where, where we're going here in, in the U.S. It'd be interesting to see how things develop, but I, I just don't see people slowing down. I see things speeding up and um, hoping that more people kind of catch on to 
and think about, you know, taking the time. Because I, I think really who suffers most are the, the younger generations, you know, the little kids who are just getting a, some crackers before they go to school or whatever it is, you know, a bowl of cereal and skim milk when they really need a, a uh, when they really should be having eggs and bacon, in my opinion. <laughs> You know. Yeah, and they're not involved in the meal preparation maybe as much. There's no family meal preparation anymore. Eric Schlosser, Fast Food Nation, great book that's now many years old, identified this yeah. the, the rise of fast food in the 50s uh, destroyed the one of the main fabrics of American culture, was, was which was the family home-cooked and home-eaten meal together. Yeah. And, and the kids are side-by-side side understanding what healthy ingredients are and how to, how to prepare a meal. And now it's just outsourced. Because hardworking parents, double income with kids, DIWK, are going, going, going all day. No one really feels like taking an hour to make a meal when you can get in line for seven minutes and, and, and bring it all home. And so, you know, step by step, we're, we're falling off into where um, today's kid has had an entire lifetime of fast food experience. And even, I was just saying this uh to, to someone about the, um, the the Slurpee phenomenon, where um, you know we we pounded a ton of Slurpees back in my day. We would ride our bikes around the San Fernando Valley in the hot summer sun, and then when we were hot and thirsty, we'd go get a Slurpee. But guess what? We went on our bicycles to get it and drink it and enjoy yeah. it, and then ride home up a really steep hill. So we knew that we're going to go get that Slurpee. We're going to pay the price coming home. Probably burned off all that sugar by the time we got home. And today, it's like the carpool stops off. And, and gets the uh, the Slurpee or the Jamba Juice or whatever. Ooh, I said Slurpee and Jamba Juice in direct comparison. Imagine that. Sorry, Jamba Juice, but same amount of simple sugar grams in that dose. You're still dosing your kid with the same thing. So how old are your kids? They're 12 and 10. And they've been in Europe their whole lives? Well, or? basically, uh, we did a tour in Japan as well, um, which neither of them remember as much. They remember Moscow and Bordeaux. Wow. And then now world travelers. Switzerland. Yeah, it's yeah. it's nice that they were in Bordeaux at a time when they actually they have still retained the French. Um in Russia they they were able to start speaking Russian but they they've forgotten it because they were they were just too small. So um and prior to that we were in Japan where my younger daughter was born and neither of them really remember that. Just, you know, we show them videos but um so yes, they've had wonderful, you know, um, kind of, uh, well, experience and exposure to other cultures. But they're, of course, they're very curious about American culture. And I, you know, as I grew up in the U.S., so to me it's not um, as interesting um, as exploring Europe. But for them, you know, I which I understand, they really want to get back to the U.S. So I'm, I have many, you know, misgivings about it, a hesitation. It's really scary for me to come back to this this uh world of uh the um, you know American I don't know the what what we do here and, and so Slurpees just, and social media, that's yeah, what we do for teenagers. But, I mean there's so many wonderful things about the United States and of course we want to show them uh, the national parks and you know the the friendliness that abounds in the U.S. The Americans are always so friendly, and um, there's so many wonderful opportunities here. But it's, 
But there, there's also the darker side that, of course, I see as being kind of a worrywart all the time. Um, you know, the things that bother me, like the, the glyphosate issues and the, the smart meters, which are, you know, required on homes throughout the U.S. And, um, you know, and then the vaccine schedules. And it's just a lot of issues that, you know, maybe, maybe you can not think about them. But I, I happen to be one who does, especially, you know, being so kind of obsessed about good health and good lifestyle and... Um, you know, that kind of thing. So the glyphosate <laughs> is uh, commercially available as Roundup and therefore uh, because it's killing weeds in the fields, it's getting into our food supply. And this is a big concern of yours. And is this non-existent in Europe? Is it banned or something? Well, you know that, no, it it's, it's allowed. And um, the EU is allowing it for a few more years, kind of, shelving the putting it off i mean unfortunately europe follows the us in a lot of um in a lot of policies that maybe maybe they shouldn't um just kind of say yes right away and follow but there, it's it's all very you know complicated and of course but for the glyphosate um you know i think it's banned in switzerland um but i still you know, purchase organic there only because um, things that are conventional are still sprayed with synthetic um, chemicals to a certain degree. So we try to, you know, eat organic and grass-fed, and uh, which is all available there. You know, hmm. but there's but as Joel Salton says, there's industrial organic, and then there's you know, local farmer organic. So we, you know, we try to we buy our um, eggs from the little a uh, pastured hen uh, farm nearby where they have a little hut and you go in on the honor system and buy your eggs and put the money oh, in the little box. Oh, I love the honor system. It's really wonderful. And Or you go to the, you know, to the farm and buy your milk. You, know, you bring your glass bottle and put in your francs and then you get your... Raw? Get your, your raw milk. Yeah, yeah. It's wonderful. There was a lady at the local supermarket here in the United States pitching her raw milk. And it turns out she's from the farm, had driven three and a half hours to set up her little stand uh, on the wow. aisle at this market and tried this raw milk. I'd never tried it in my life. I've only written about it for many years <laughs> in all the books. Like, raw is a superior choice because of all the nutrition that is killed with the pasteurization process. Try to find it in your area. I'm like, good luck with that. Here I was drinking my first raw milk. It was delicious. I don't even drink milk. And I bought, you know, the stuff from her and was making my smoothies with it. And oh, nice. it tastes it tastes different. The eggs taste so much different. And the bright colored yolk to the extent that now like um, you know, I'm becoming a uh a, a, a Francophile. Uh, that's a <laughs> nice polite term for uh you know, extreme devotion to French culture. So now I'm the eggophile where I, I really only like the pastured eggs and I, I yeah. have a there's a distinct drop down to the extent that I don't even feel like making an omelet with regular eggs. When once you've had once you've gone to that other side and tasted huge difference. So when you have industrial organic, like USDA certified organic, green circle, familiar on all the labels, um how is that comparing to your local farmer? How is the local farmer superior to that organic but mass-produced and mass-transported product? Well, in the U.S., it used to be Oregon Tilth um, was sort of this, the name for the uh, certification 
Um, there were others as well, but there were sort of smaller third-party certification for organic. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. And, um, you know, but now because organic in the U.S. has become so much, has become a, a significant profitable portion of sales of, of food, the USDA, I think, kind of stepped in. And mm. I think they... You know, I haven't read all the regulations of what it takes to be organic under USDA, but it's not the same as Oregon Tilth. You know, the, I think they've lowered the bar in order to let more people in. So, you know, it's what's not, Tilth stand for? Um, you know, I don't know if it was the, the location. Um, I mean, not, I know MILF, Oregon MILF, is one thing, but Oregon Tilth is Tilth, different. Yeah, well, yeah. I think that's just the name. I don't know if it's. An Sorry, acronym. people, you're on the you're on the Get Over Yourself podcast. There are going to be occasional jokes going, whether it's over your head or not. <laughs> okay. That's fine. Okay, it might yeah. be over my head. <laughs> I know, I know some Oregon milfs, but I don't know Oregon Tilth. Yeah, I've heard of that and seen that here and there. So you're saying that predates or is more refined and sophisticated than USDA certified organic. Yeah, definitely. Uh, higher standard, and and very much predates USDA. In fact, Mm. I don't even see Oregon Tilth anymore. Mm. I think they probably, either they killed it or, you know, kind of took over. Um, Probably still in Portland. I don't know, Brian, you're mastering the recording. Tell us, go look in that label. (laughs) Uh, But I'm aware that an organic animal with the organic stamp uh, is mandated that they ate organic feed, which is a lot different than, you know... (laughs) Um, going out and being a, a pure pasture-raised yeah. animal. Well, that's right. That's probably the biggest I guess that's difference. for the eggs, too. And so when you get a pastured egg from a farm, that chicken most likely ate some worms, some grass, had a very diet, high omega-3 diet, is spitting out an egg with all that good stuff in it, whereas the organic egg maybe just ate organic feed. And I know they yeah. have... Um, right on. They're supposed to have access to pasture, which in some cases could be a little door in a giant coop, right? So they're not really a pastured animal. That's cage-free, I think. Right, cage-free. They, they there's a door over there cage-free. if you guys want to go exercise. Yeah. I don't think they do, <laughs> yeah. unfortunately. Yeah, and there are a few. For eggs, it's, it's, it's very confusing, I think, because in the U.S. there are many different, you know, um, I don't know, labels that they use. Um, and actually, Diana Rogers has done a great job of uh, you know, she's a farmer herself, and she she talks about the the differences. And um, you know, it, it. I think if you're if you go with pastured, that's means pastured. Usually, that yes, they had some worms and they were out in a pasture. Um, and going back to J- Joel Salatin, the farmer, you know, he'll do. He will um, move his cows from paddock to paddock and follow a couple of days later with the chickens and they eat, you know, the worms and everything that are in the poop. And it's a great cycle. You know, they, they kind of, um, this is how the soil regenerates and the pastures regenerate. You know, you, you have the cows there, then you move them on elsewhere. So the, the grass can regenerate and you have the, the chickens who are all happy about the, the little worms, um, left behind or growing, you know, and in the poop (laughs) and makes for great eggs. And in your environment, in general, in Europe, are these much easier to find? Are they, are they consumed at a higher level than here? Well, I would say, you know, especially in Switzerland where they, um, where they kind of, the government subsidizes the farmers. 
um, to keep the to, to really steward the landscape and to keep the um, uh, landscape where it's pasture pasture land and um, where there are, you do see cows and you do see the farms they're all over really in the countryside. So they subsidize all farming activity they, to, to yes. make sure that it doesn't become industrialized like we might think in America? Well, there is, some, there is of course, some industrial farming, um, but at least the organic farmers are subsidized. I, I can't say for 100% sure. I think also non-organic are subsidized to a certain degree so that they can carry on um, this you know, business that otherwise would just be, you know, it would it would deteriorate. Um, and in terms of industrial organic in Switzerland, for example, it's, um, you know, there are two competing large grocery chain stores and then they'll have their farmers who contribute to the milk and the sour cream and all those, you know, dairy products as, as well as the meats and the eggs actually. Um, so as, as for France, um, trying to think, you know, um, uh, there are a lot of local farmers. You can, you know, there's a, there are markets there. Um, this is this is what's wonderful. Even in Switzerland too, there there are market markets in the in the towns. But um, in what's so wonderful about uh, France are these farmers markets, as we call them in the U.S. They have them, you know, during the week and then on the weekends, depending on where you are or if it's a larger city. You know, they'll have them in different places and you can you know get to know it's either farmers or it's vendors who have gone to farms and but not all of them are um are organic some of them uh might be industrial but you, you if you go to a market you have more chances of getting um non-industrial with or without organic you know um, because they're trying, they're just trying to sell. There, they don't have a grocery store that they're connected with, so they're just selling their, you know, their small farm vegetables and um, eggs and and meats. I'm wondering. So the I'm wondering about the average citizen because here in America, whatever city, if you're listening in St. Louis or Sacramento or New York City or L.A. or Corpus Christi, Texas, or anywhere. You can do a fabulous job as a as a as a huge enthusiast, right? You can order your uh, salmon eggs over the internet, and your uh, wild idea buffalo will ship anywhere uh, in, in the freezer packs, and have all kinds of delicious uh, foods that you can eat from the, the finest quality meats wherever you live. Um, yeah. Well, in now, the, oh. can you can you? Um, identify the average person because here the average person is so far removed they, they you know they, they think the buffalo's the, the animal on the nickel and they have no exposure to the distinct offerings of even a farmer's market they probably drive by uh, but they're used to consuming a lot of fast food or if they do go to the market they're getting uh, the best of the mass-produced and i know we have more population here than switzerland so some of this is going to be tough but um, I think we're talking about a small segment of, um, uh, uh, here in America, a small segment of society is really on their game 
and they're doing better than we ever have ever in terms of dietary quality and distinctive looking for the dark chocolate that's uh you know cacao beans is the first ingredient and staying away from this so we have like that however many percent of people doing that but then the average is so dismal and even in the uh, in the impoverished areas, it's been identified like they don't even have access to vegetables. They can't even find them if they wanted to in their community. So if we go take that average over to uh, uh, France, Switzerland, maybe even an urban uh, environment that's um, mixed socio socioeconomic, how do those people do? Well, part of it is location. Um, if you're in the cities, you have access to a uh, a market you know and and in Bern where we live which is the capital of of Switzerland there's a well, there's a market in, in, every day in the center vegetables and that kind of thing so for city dwellers um city dwellers have access to market almost daily in Switzerland um you could probably say the same thing for most towns in France uh not every well, cities, um, maybe a few times a week they have markets. Smaller towns, it might just be once or twice. Um, but the average citizen, I think, kind of uh, does rely on markets, you know, the farmer's markets, uh, still to a degree, and much more so than here in the U.S. Um, though I would say, yes, 2018, people are used to the bigger grocery stores, it's convenient, everything's in one place. So there's definitely a shift um, to convenience, efficiency, mm. definitely not, it's not a happiness factor. And as I write in my, in the book, you know, my, my trips to the grocery store uh, by car were just, I would come back feeling exhausted and you know, unfulfilled with a full, full, you know, cartload of, of, um, groceries, but just not feeling that great about having, mm-hmm. you know, taken the car. Um, and I would say, you know, in the, in the countryside, people are, they, they live on a farm then, you know? Um, so they're eating at least a certain portion of their food, um, from their farm. In the suburbs, I would say that's that's maybe the hardest thing because there might not necessarily be a market. The suburbs are closer to land that is commercialized where they set up, you know, the the grocery stores, the industrial, you know, grocery stores. Um, but uh, there's one more aspect of Europe that. We don't quite have as well here except for certain cities, which is public transport, public transportation. So, for example, if you live in the suburbs of a, of a city such as Bordeaux or Bern or, um, you know, Paris, you can get into the center on either streetcar or bus or subway, the metro, you know, what it, um, it, it's really in Europe. I mean, they're connected by train and bus and trams. So that's very different here. In the U.S., you have to kind of get in your car to go anywhere, unless you're willing to walk, you know, 45 minutes to the grocery store. Which uh, it, that's a tough one. You know, people are definitely, um, you know, uh, strapped for time here. So as everywhere, but it, it needs to be convenient and. 
the most convenient thing is the car in the U.S., really. That's how I, unless you live in New York City, which is a great thing about New York, um, is the subway. But, um, you know, that, that's just not the, the same America as the rest of mm-hmm. America. So that's one big difference I see for sure. So the kids, pre, pre-teen kids here, we, we kind of have a sense of their experience. They're starting to engage deeper and deeper into social media, sometimes with uh, profound negative effects. They're not exercising much. We have studies from the Kaiser Family Foundation identifying that the average kid of that age is engaging with a screen six point something hours per day. Um, we have a failure rate for a basic fitness competency test in California, arguably one of the more progressive and healthy and good weather states, um, 40% of the kids fail to complete a mile run in, in a, in a you know, pretty, pretty modest time. Like, in other words, they can't even jog for a mile. They have to walk and they fail this performance standard uh, on the, on the uh, standardized test. What about in Europe? What are your kids getting that you feel is maybe superior from the average American experience? And what are the kids like, too? Well, um, in our neighborhood, we're in kind of a suburb of, um, of the capital. Um, little kids walk to school by themselves. By I mean, themselves? I mean, little. We're like talking, kindergarten, first we're grade? kindergarten, wow. yeah. Do they have ankle bracelets on for their parents uh, to track them or they not? They have big orange vests on so you can see them oh, when they cross so the street. Oh, that's so cute. And, you know, usually they're not by themselves or with a sibling or a little, little pack of three or four. If they're a little bit bigger, say, you know, fourth grade, sixth grade, whatever, they're riding their bikes or they're on their scooters, um, uh, yeah, no, no parents. I don't know where the parents are there, but they're not walking their kids to school. So, um, that's, uh, pause. So we, the video cut out, Brian. So we were, we'll just smoothly come back in. You were, you were saying about the, oh, the kids are walking to school. So you talked about the, the big kids, the parents are not around and then you can keep going. Okay. So. Yeah, and um, our children go to an international school, so the kids there are, you know, from from all over the place. There are very few Swiss children, um, but um, I'm always trying to ask, you know, what what are the kids eating for breakfast? It, I'm just curious, you know, that pop tarts, of course. Yeah. Well, unfortunately, a lot of them are are eating, you know, just a quick thing. Um, I don't know, granola bar or cereal or whatever. Um, I try to feed my girls the bacon and eggs in the morning or liverwurst, um, or, you know, some, something solid that carries them through and they don't even need that mid morning snack. That's, that is figured in, it's scheduled into the school day. Well, we call it, we've called it nutrition here forever. It was called nutrition period. I don't know if every state, uh, the listeners can reference, but in California, when I grew up in elementary school, we had nutrition at 10. And then we had lunch at 12 or whatever huh. to get uh, almost almost zero nutrition reflecting right. now on what we were eating, but it was a nice try. <laughs> well, so they, you know, the, the kids, um, well, they have their snack and then the, the lunch, of course, the school would like to um, make sure that the cafeteria stays in business. Um, but to be honest, I send my girls to school with home lunches because it's, Otherwise, it's too expensive, 
And, you know, I know what I'm giving them. I'm giving them grass-fed beef, you know, for their lunch, which will carry them through until, you know, later in the day, till they, till they get back home. Um, and How about their, you, you told me offline about their outdoor uh, oh, experience right. and yeah. their kind of distinct from the uh, high engagement of screen here. You're, you're sending yeah. them out to... Did they come to you and they say they were bored and you said go outside and that solves the problem? Something like that. You told me it was oh, brilliant. Well, I, um, I, I guess our, um, what we do is we have our 10 minutes a day. So they can do their 10 minutes oh, on their iPad. 10 minutes a screen a day. It, 10 minutes. Wow, that's tight, man. Um, but Love you, it. <laughs> but it turns inevitably into 15 or 20 and sometimes a half an hour. But, you know, compared to... The statistics that I've seen, it's still, you know, and they're checking their email, they're playing a couple of games or something like that. And then, uh, though my older daughter has more and more homework online, which uh, drives me nuts, you know, I'd rather just have her write it down. But I understand, you know, that um, everyone thinks they need to, you know, keep up and learn. And um, meanwhile, I didn't see a computer screen till sixth grade, the first Apple, you know, computers. And um, I don't know. I just I, I think I think they learn better. Well, and we we're learning more about the blue light, how it's just mm. absolutely ravaging the eyes. And for children, I just you know it's a longer time in front of the screen over a lifetime that's you know leading to. Oh mercy! You know, I never thought about that. It's like we we know that if you live seventy or seventy five or eighty years you're going to get the cataracts just from exposure to light over a lifetime, right? And now we're accelerating that to we're probably going to see cataracts in today's children when they're 40 or 45 because of the intensity and the frequency of their light exposure is two, three, four times as much as someone who grew up in, you know, with sunlight and a little bit of evening screen use. Yeah. But no computers until you were in sixth grade or whatever. Right. Yeah. Well, and macular degeneration is um, is just skyrocketing apparently I've been listening to some you know eye doctors talk about this and so there are a lot of issues not to mention the disruption of circadian rhythm you know especially if kids are watching television at night and they're you know buzzed and wide awake um, when they're supposed to go to sleep uh, not getting enough sleep and yeah. that whole so we always hear this term blue light do you have a good can you explain that for the layperson? Oh gosh, well the blue light um it's it's the blue light is basically the color that we see at around noon. But if we're watching or looking at a screen at nine o'clock at night, for example, you're it the light that spectrum of blue light that we get from our screens is telling our bodies it's twelve noon, it's twelve noon. So of course it's hard to go to sleep. You know, there's a whole, uh, there's a lot about um, quantum physics that I don't understand and light uh, spectrums. But as a photographer, I, I I do understand that there are different colors of light, and you know, I tried to be conscious of that when I when I photographed for the book. Um, but you know, I we evolved in sunlight, and we kind Only. of. Right. Well, right. And we yeah. don't... And firelight and candlelight, which is uh, the orange or the red light on the UV spectrum. So the blue is not... 
it's not blue when we go out and look at the midday sun. It looks white, right? But it's called blue, and you can reference the sky being blue because that's how that's how the um, so let's we, see. I don't want to butcher this for the science, but the sky is made blue because of the the blue light spectrum coming from the sun. And I guess that's a good way to yeah. um, there's something about realize that it actually it's it's blue. But indoors, when we turn on a light bulb or a screen, it's not it's not blue light bulbs. They're white light bulbs, but they're emitting what we're going to call blue light. So hopefully you can reference that. And then your comment that um, the screen is like the midday sun, they can measure this. Like the intensity of the light experience is like midday sun. Yeah. And therefore, it's triggering your genes and hormones to think that it's midday. And this, so the kids are wired when they go to sleep. Well, and we used and to have... And the humans, the adults. Right. And we used to have tungsten light bulbs, you know, and I mm. think they need to bring those back, which is just, you know, the the light bulb that has kind of an orange glow. Um, uh, just so the old time round light bulb that's now been replaced with the swirly, swirly ice cream cone? Yes. Tell me the difference. And the, well, there are a lot of differences and... Um, trying to keep them all straight, but the tungsten is sort of a—it's an orange, orangey glow, whereas these these sort of ice cream swirl, new fandango um, light bulbs have—I believe some of them have um, certain gases in them that are really poisonous if it breaks. But some of these are LED light emitting diodes, so they're actually—you can't see it, but they're 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 uh, flickering. They're flickering too fast for us to actually visually see, but the brain um, sees it, if you will. And, um, you know, some people's brains can't handle that. And uh, like a lot of the hyperactivity comes from fluorescent lights and LEDs that are, you know, flickering. And it's just too much... um, uh, It's too much for the brain, you know, and, and... um, unfortunately, a lot of people, well, you don't notice it and it's kind of a, something that affects your eyesight over time. And then things that are really um, not normal become, seem normal because they're so common. You know, poor eyesight, myopia, you know, the eyes elongating to try to make up for all the, the weird light signals that we're sending to our, our eyes. Um, so that's something, and, and actually someone who's really into this quantum physics and, and thinks our health is deteriorating because of our lack of sunlight is, um, a neurosurgeon named Dr. Jack Cruz, who's very interesting to listen to and, and probably quite, I think, controversial, but, uh, very, uh, very interesting. And he has some interesting messages about, about light and, you know, everyone wears sunglasses you go outside, you put on sunglasses, you're never really getting any any light in your eyes, except for that blue light that's 12 noon light. Um, so anyway, I, I try to limit the time on the screens. And of course, meanwhile, I'm saying, you know, get off your screen and I'm, you know, working on my screen to get this book out. Um, so that's that's really tough for them to come to terms with and for me too, you know. 
Yeah. I, I made a joke on another podcast where I said, yeah, I'm really strict about this. And every night at 10 o'clock, I text my kids to, to get off their screens. <laughs> right. So, because yeah. we, we do so much texting in the house now and the, the doors are closed. People are engaged with their own screens. We're losing that aspect of family time as well. Yeah. yeah. No screens at the table. I mean, no nothing at the table yeah, when we're right, eating. Right. It's just so, those, the food. those nice built in rules. Right. Yeah. So the part about the sunglasses being um, an objection as well, the way I understand it is especially first thing in the morning, mm-hmm, the sun's right. not too intense where it's going to mess you up if you have indirect exposure. Obviously, you don't want to look at the sun ever, listeners, remember that. But if you expose your eyeballs directly to sun in the morning, that is a nice setup of your circadian rhythm, uh, triggering the proper hormone flow and the serotonin spike and all that great stuff. And that is setting you up for a peaceful evening of sleep that Mm -hmm. night because you exposed yourself to direct sun. But if you're doing the sunglasses, the subway, and then into the workplace, you're missing missing that opportunity. And therefore, you're not getting the right signals and the right hormone flow in the evening because you've just been blasted with this steady source of indoor light. Yeah. So especially with the kids after dark, um, I imagine that 10 minutes of screen that you allow is sometime before dark. Yeah, it's right after school. They have their snack, then they do their their 10 minutes. It and drags into on. 22. They can watch one Netflix episode without commercials of a sitcom. So there you go. <laughs> um, and then they, they go off to do their homework. And my girls love to read books, not um Kindle or anything, just a real book in the hand. So they they do that. They could get a lot more outdoor time. I wish they would. Sometimes I send them out to the trampoline. Um, Burn or, some energy. Yeah. Love that. I had a trampoline growing up in my backyard, and it was the centerpiece of the culture, the community, the friends. We were out there all the time. It was just the greatest toy ever. A few injuries and all that, but... We didn't have the net around it like today's trampoline. Right. It was dug into the ground, and you just jumped on that thing. We tried to jump over a high jump bar and uh, crazy wow. times. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, so that's the ours has a net, of course. Um, but yeah, it's just um, it's hard to even you know it's hard to get kids outside. We're lucky enough to have a garden, and sometimes we can convince them in the summer to help pick some berries and their berries. Um, but I think, um, yeah, getting that morning light, that's something that also Dr. Jack Cruz talks about, um, really that it's the, um, it's the, the particular colors, the, the purple and the red light of the morning and then at sunset that make our, I'm not sure what it is exactly, something in the mitochondria, the, the DNA, the things spin faster, almost like um, kind of having this anti-aging effect. Whereas, you know, well, light when it hits us and all matter is is light slowed down. So if you, you know, we're really just light and energy slowed down. We're swirling massive and, atoms, according to Deepak Chopra. Right. We're not physical well, beings. Well, right. he's, he, I mean, he's right in a way that, you know, it, it, it's, um, we've, we, we're, we're light slowed down. I don't know how else to explain it, but there are certain spectrums, like I said, or, or parts of the spectrum, the red and the purple light that, 
that hit us and that make everything spin faster. Um, and when you don't have that, you, you know, you age faster. So it's kind of the, the opposite. It's, it's a little bit confusing. I have to listen over and over again to these, um, this sort of these theories, but there is something to it. I think, you know, we're not really getting, um, and, and grounding to the ground, you know, really getting mm. your feet in the grass when it's moist and letting the, the negative, um, electrons from the mm-hmm. earth pass through through us. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, Same with fresh air versus stale air. Yeah, the negative ions are energized molecular particles in the air, and they're emanating from the earth. The earth is magnetized, and it's it's dispensing energy into your bare feet. If you have shoes on or you're walking on cement, you're not getting it. Right. They call it earthing. Yeah. Uh, but also, the uh, I'm, I'm fascinated by the concept of the fresh. The fresh air being highly energized with negative ions. Negative being the the chemical term, but a very positive thing, right? Yeah. So negative ions are the ones full of energy, and then positive ions are what are found in tightly enclosed metal spaces, such as a car, airplane, mm-hmm. uh, space capsule, uh, in, internal office environment. And so the air is literally devoid of energy compared to fresh air. So when you're out at the, especially by a large body of water in the mountains, when it's windy, these are the most energized places on earth uh, vis-a-vis the places that have the least energy, including pollution in an urban environment has uh, de-energized air. So you can get these negative ion generating air filters and put one in your room and get the, mm-hmm. the the benefit of that energized air from a artificially, but it's still exactly the same chemically as the fresh air outside. So everyone go out there and get a, uh, a air purifier that has an ionizer attached to it, and then you're going to improve your situation. And this came about because the astronauts were training in the space capsule, the early astronauts, mm-hmm. and they'd become inexplicably fatigued after a short time inside the enclosed metal space, even though that air was being pumped in, whatever, and they finally realized that there was the molecular composition of the air uh, because of the metal enclosure. And so they installed these ionizing machines and the, the problem was solved and that's where they first discovered the dangers. We don't even you know, talk about this stuff when we're uh, building subways and selling people cars and building right. a brand new office building with uh, the wonderful uh, conditioned air that has you can't even open the windows in most buildings or hotels. Right. No, that's yeah. true. Well, and also with the astronauts, how many times a day are they seeing the sunrise and the sunset? Too many. So they are just oh, they've accelerated their up. aging. Yeah. Yeah. And, we were we did not evolve in space. We evolved on the Earth, which had a certain you know the twenty four hour cycle, and so I can I can see jet how they lag. come back. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> jet lag. Um, yeah. Uh, well, and something else, Doctor Jack Cruz talks about is he thinks um, you know something like obesity is really a um, a function of not getting the right amount and the right type of light into the eye. Because that's where it all starts. It's in the eye, and that sends all. The, it starts the cascade of hormonal messaging, which you know is is very interesting because we do spend all our time either in front of these blue light screens, or with sunglasses outside, or we're just inside all day. So we're not getting the light, and we're not getting those 
signals. And so one thing, you know, I, I talk about in the book is that how people go to the markets or on foot or on bike, they're outside. They have small refrigerators, they need to get outside, small, you know, usually a s- smaller apartments. People are really social, they, they get out, uh, they're outside. So, you know, there's something to, to that, um, eating al fresco, you know, eating outside, outdoors, grounding, uh, that whole community um, exchange, uh, walking to and from or biking to and from the market. And these are all things that we might not do if we have the convenience of a car and a big store, you know, that you drive to and with the artificial lights, you know, beaming into your eyes. So there, there are those kinds of differences that, you know, we don't, we don't really think about here in the U.S. as much. Yeah, the light thing is interesting. I'm thinking of the incredible book, Lights Out, Sleep, Sugar, and yeah. Survival. And they're talking about this constant exposure to light and prolonged days that are lit up because the, mm-hmm. the blue light indoors from the light bulb and the screen is akin to sunlight. So we are in modern life making an endless summer in, in terms of our genetic uh, signaling. So we, we always think it's summer, no matter where we live, especially in the uh, high latitudes where they're, you know, you're, you're getting home from work and it's getting dark at 4.15 in Stockholm and then you're, right. you're lit up all night uh, playing with the screen and doing whatever. So if it's always summer, um, our historical genetic experience is to binge on sugar, the, the ripened berries of the time, and fatten up for the winter. This, right. is, this is a genetically optimal, uh, hardwired into our genes because of the, the difficult long winters where there's not enough food. We want to have an extra layer of body fat, and then humans would generally lose that when they, the weather changed and all that. We'd slow down in the winter and get fat and sit around. And so now we're that way all the time. It's, yeah. it's endless summer, endless cravings for sugar. We know from sleep research that um, the, the, um, the, the messing up the sleep uh, hormones and, and d- getting sleep deficient is going to spike the appetite hormones and dysregulate the fat burning and fat storage hormones to the extent that you're going to crave sugar and store it as fat. So I think that's... That's what Jack Cruz is on to and yeah. uh, many others identifying these problems that have nothing to do with your willpower and your discipline and you shouldn't eat after dark. And it seems like the, this conversation is going in the direction of like, we have to purposely de-tech ourselves or, or, or de-efficientize yeah. our experience. And Europe's behind in that way, so they're way ass healthier than us because they have to ride their bike to the market and go buy another green pepper tomorrow because they didn't go to Costco and get six of them in a shrink wrap thing that came from <laughs> Chile in February to North America. Right. Yeah. So we got to go backwards. We got to go back to Europe and back to Europe. <laughs> regain our health. Yeah. In a backwards direction. Wow. So the book. Sitting here in between us, we haven't opened it up and dug deep into it yet. But what's cool is you get these many of these points across about the return to ancestral traditions, especially when it comes to cooking and, and wine and, and all that kind of thing. But you you talk about your health struggles, your health journey, your increasing awareness in the midst of this uh, French cooking immersion. 
Yeah, so that's, um, I, I'm trying to take people on the journey with me. I know a lot of people have health struggles of their own, and I'm hoping that this will help maybe reveal to people some ideas, some concepts and hacks of how to, you know, improve their health. The and hack is to slow down. <laughs> the, the, um, the antithesis of the word hack, yeah. right? A hack is a shortcut or optimization, but that's the ultimate hack is slow, slow, but slow down. Slow yeah. down and do it yourself and find the mm. joy in, in cooking if possible, when possible. Um, it really is a pleasure if you're, if you're, feeding, you know, your family and you know it's it's good for them and you source the ingredients and even if it's only once a week, you know, and you kind of prepare meals for the rest of the week. Though I'm I don't do that um necessarily, but um uh I, because I like to use fresh ingredients and but but something about flavor is also that I talk about is using fresh ingredients, using the right tools. Um you know, something, a concept that um, the French use is uh, called terroir, um, about local, you could, you could translate it as sort of local flavor, you know. Um, every, um, every wine and every cheese comes from a certain place and tastes the way it does because of where it's from, whether it's the altitude, the climate, um, the soil, the microbiome of the soil, uh, uh, you know, the latitude, um, especially for wine. Wine really grows in certain latitudes of nor of the northern and and southern hemispheres. Um, and you know, I think that's catching on in the U.S. is sort of local flavor, um, artisanal cheeses, dairy, for example, chocolate too. I went yeah, on the the, the Theo right. chocolate tour, and they say that. Um, the the beans take a, a flavor of pineapple, you know, from the tropical environment or, or whatever. There's an influence from the soil, and, and every batch is different, and all that wild stuff. Definitely, definitely, and and again, um, well, a lot of the people in the sort of ancestral health realm talk about the microbiome, and you know, we have microbiome everywhere, as it turns out, in our you know, gums and our brains and our on our skin and not just in the gut. Oh, right. Um, the bacteria is mostly in everywhere. the gut, and we hear about the twelve trillion cells of uh, bacteria in our gut, but it's it's in the brain and throughout the body as well. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think, um, I think also, you know, we don't like to think of it this way, but we're exposed to uh, viruses and parasites and all sorts of things all the time, and it depends on how healthy your microbiome is in all of these places that you can ward off disease or not. Um, and, and again, you know, with processed foods, there's no living. You frowned when you said processed foods, Tanya. <laughs> I saw that. I Our YouTube I'm... viewers are going, if she doesn't like processed foods, what's no, her problem? I, I think it's, you know, the, the fresh ingredients, the real ingredients, Things that you where you maybe have even talked to the farmer. These are the kinds of things if you can get them into your life and into your kitchen. It's such a pleasure to to use real um, products and and not have to look at a, at a label on something. You know, that's just <sighs> just put the boxes away. One ingredient, you know, it's prunes or it's whatever. 
whatever it is, rice, if you're eating rice, or a sack of potatoes, um, you know, or, or grass-fed beef, organ meats. These are sort of the things that I, I talk about, and I, I've divided my book into different chapters on each kind of meat, how to prepare pork in different ways, um, offal, the organ meats, beef, lamb, and, and there is a chapter on vegetables and, of course, desserts, which everyone likes. You've got to you <laughs> know, have dessert. The, the, <laughs> the insight about the French culture is they really enjoy and prioritize their eating. So when you're talking about a dessert, but it's a homemade preparation that you did with your children with love and, and laughter and put the, put the time and energy into it. You went down to the farmer's market to buy the fresh lemons to make the lemon meringue pie. And oh yeah, there's a bunch of sugar in it and it's going to bump you out of keto and all that terrible stuff. But now we're starting to, I feel like we're backpedaling from this intense battle where we're shouting down the naysayers and battling with, with uh, you know, fists clenched against the vegans because they're so wrong and we're so right. And we're, I think we're all taking a few steps backward and trying to get more reasonable and say, hey, enjoy your meal time. Um, if it's going to be dessert, make it count. Don't wolf something down, a, a drumstick from the frozen package at 7-Eleven. But if you're going to go make some dessert, look in the book. Try some of that stuff. It's pretty darn good. We had some dessert, didn't we, before we began the podcast right. in, in the morning hours. I had some of my chocolate mousse. It was, it was fabulous. It was fabulous. Yeah. With that whipped cream, that's... Cranking. Cranking. Thumbs up all around. I don't care if you're... I mean, it was, it was keto approved. It happened to be. So you can make some good choices too if you're, if you're big on this. But I think the bigger insight I wanted to point out was like, these people know how to live that are food enthusiasts. And that's probably getting them past the negative aspects of consuming that bread with the freshest, purest olive oil and balsamic vinegar that they're dipping it in, right? Well, you know, I, in the book, I, I, the recipes that I have for desserts, for example, are, are actually low sugar uh, for the most part, or you can try your other sweeteners. Um, but, you know, it's, if, if, it, if the meal is rich... Um, rich enough, whether it's the dessert or the main course, you know, with enough good fats, um, not the hydrogenated or the, um, you know, ultra-processed vegetable oils. Um, if you've got your good traditional fats, and I'm talking tallow, lard, butter, um, <laughs> goose fat and duck fat. Duck fat's huge in the southwest of France um, and delicious. You know, these are the things that will satisfy you, use them in the desserts, and then you don't need all the sugar, or use them in the main course and, and the desserts. Um, but you, you then you'd need, well, less food. Um, you just eat less but more high-quality foods that are really rich, like your chocolate mousse from this morning that was very rich, and you just you can't eat that much of it, and there was no sugar in it even. Um, it's the richness of these fats too, and I, I go into this, you know, at length in the book. That's what satisfies, you know, your your if you're not corrupted by the frown frown processed foods, you know, your your palate will just really enjoy the the richness, and that's you know I talk about that with the the French paradox, 
It's not really a paradox, is it? Because the French paradox being that they have lowest rates of heart disease, but have among the highest fat intake in the diet, but it's identified as uh, nutritious natural fats. Right. Well, so but that's not a par- paradox, as oh. you were saying. It's a it's an advantage. It's because right. We're going to rename it right now. I mean, the French paradox it. is a. It's kind of like a medical term or a scientific phenomenon, right? It it's, a, it's a real thing that people keep talking about. It was, call, it was, it was called out, uh, coined in a study. Right. So we're re- renaming that shit <laughs> right now on this show. It's the French advantage. It's the French advantage. They eat more fat. Um, what do you say to the uh, objectioners that don't want you eating that fat because it's going to cause heart disease? I mean, I'm sure you encounter that, especially in Europe and wherever else. Yeah, that's that's really tough because we have been conditioned over decades to believe that the fat is bad and you know, high cholesterol and all these these issues that Especially duck fat, that's disgusting. I mean, oh, it's fabulous. Oh, until you try it. Right. <laughs> and all that butter. Got, you know, do your eggs in butter and wow. Oh, that is yeah. just the best. Um uh, and grass-fed butter if possible. Um, but, but, but not a little butter, like a, a, a substantial amount to where the egg tastes like butter. <laughs> better than, I mean, I, I've been doing that lately where I'm just throwing a little more on and it makes a big difference and it's so satisfying like you're talking about. Yeah. It's a, it's a big difference. Satisfying. Yeah. And a little bit of salt, you know, sea salt or Himalayan salt. I mean, you know, it's so satisfying. You just go through your morning and... You think, oh, it's lunchtime, you know, rather than an mm. hour later just scrounging for something, you know, after you've had your little <laughs> your handful little, uh, of uh, granola or cottage oh. cheese with blueberries on top or yeah. yogurt or oh, what gosh. have you with some orange juice. And I know people, yeah. people think that they're, you know, they're doing themselves a service by having the low fat and a few of those blueberries. And I, I just feel like, you know, give it a try. I mean, mm. the, all you can do, you can't really change people's opinion you can give them the facts the research Mm. but you know i can say from my family's point of view for example it's just um anecdotal but you know when we started to really cut out the sugars and the the more refined flours and processed things that and adding in those fats more butter more duck fat a more lard tallow you know we um, we were feeling better. My husband dropped about ten pounds. He didn't know he had. Um, my girls were able to uh, concentrate better at school, um, and there were fewer tantrums when we dropped uh, the gluten for the younger one. It was a, a really, um, I think, a, a big issue. The processed, you know, flours, baguettes in the morning, and cereal but we've transitioned now to the bacon and, and eggs for the most part or liverwurst in the mornings and it's a you know it's a really good start to the day and um you know we feel satisfied i feel much better i you know i used to eat um one of those i don't know it was called friends cereals um it you know, in grad school with rice milk and i would come crashing down during my during my class and, um, you know, my trade law class, and I would be falling asleep, not just because it was trade law, but because it was... Because <laughs> uh, of the rice milk and yeah, the friends. Just, yeah. just, yeah. So it's a, it's a lot different when you have a really good 
meal that carries you through the night or through the morning or whatever. Hold on. So you said give it a try in passing, and I think that's a profound suggestion because we're exposed to so much information, wondering if this authority is credible or not. Yeah, I know you've done a ton of research, and we've talked so much about your study and your background. You're, you're, you're unbiased. I mean, you came into this from vegetarian world and, and health problems that made you go on this uh, long journey of searching and exploring and, and testing out. So if we can encourage the listener to do that, wow, t- test out the book. You can pick and choose. I know it's 600-something pages, but it's easy to dive into how to cook the organ meat section because I'm so intimidated by doing stuff like that and I, I tried liver, it doesn't taste that good. But if we can figure out creative ways and get, get some competency there, wow. Yeah. Worthwhile. Definitely. I think so. It's, I try to make uh, all the meats, and including the organ meats, approachable. Um, you know, and I Hopefully the animal's ate, dead before you approach it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Then it's approachable. Well, that's a whole uh, another issue of, you know, the the moral vegetarian versus, you know, but I have to say that, you know, there's a there's also a chapter on on butchery. I did a butchery apprenticeship and you know, when you when you're breaking down a carcass, you really understand respect for the animal and you really want to try to use every piece of it from the organs to the fat to every piece of meat and even the bones you know for your your bone broth um it's it's really um when you kind of really dig in with your hands and you really touch these the, the meat for example are the or the organs you realize wow this is this is the most nourishing stuff for me and my family, and this animal gave its life, and I don't want to waste, you know, any bit of it. Um, so, and I, I talk about that in the book too, about rendering your own fat, and mm. you know, just having having that as a tool, the, the 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 different fats that you can use for your your cooking. But that's definitely something, you know, respecting by eating nose to tail. We're really respecting ourselves, our nutritional needs, and the, the life of the animal, frankly. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's uh, I see. Brian McAndrew, the guy mastering this recording, said something similar on his podcast where if you're going to take an animal's life, you better you better lead a purposeful and, and meaningful life yourself. You know, you don't don't go don't let it go to waste by yeah. sitting on the couch watching too much Netflix until midnight. You know, make Absolutely. make make it count and get some energy. Go do something. Love that. So this feels like uh, the conclusion of part one of seven podcasts that we have with you. There's so many topics we can dig into. And I appreciate your insight. The, the cultural learnings of America and Europe from Tanya. Good stuff. The book is the real deal. You have to go get this if you're interested in this ancestral living in French culture. The Bordeaux Kitchen, it's called. And good luck on your book tour, spreading the word. And we can also find you at tanyateshka.com. Yep, and bordeauxkitchen.com. Oh, great. Okay. Thanks, Thanks for, for talking. So Chris Kelly, Nourish, Balance, Thrive, we're, we're talking about health and you're telling me a funny story about your picky four-year-old daughter that won't eat unless there's Primal Kitchen uh, condiments on the table. It's true. My daughter will not eat unless there's 
cooking the primal kitchen wilder <laughs> it's, it's this cute thing actually she does we have a local state park called wilder ranch oh yeah and uh, she calls the ranch dressing wilder ranch dressing which <laughs> we, 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 there's no way we're going to correct her on that it's just too it's so so endearing uh how old um, is she She's four. Oh my god! So she likes like the mayo on. A oh yeah, she so she loves those. So we love them as well. We have uh, we we eat them all the time. We eat the mayo. We eat the balsamic. We eat the the ranch. Um, the avocado oil we use all the time, and, and so you know that's completely genuine. And I don't mind talking about that because you took the pain in the ass out of condiments. I really appreciate that. What an authentic spot from Chris Kelly at Nourish Balance Thrive. And yes, Primal Kitchen, you can call it Wilder Ranch Dressing if you want. <laughs> and uh, we'll send five cents of the proceeds over to that beautiful state park as they're, they're trying to make ends meet in Santa Cruz Mountains. Thank you very much, Chris. <laughs> it's my pleasure.